The second Bible reading for this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 3, and we'll be reading uh, from verse 1 through to verse 24. And that reading can be found on page 3 of the Pew Bibles or up on the screen if you'd prefer. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Well, good morning uh, once again. It's a great privilege uh, to be with you here in Surrey Hills. I'm always delighted uh, to be here and to share with you. And thank you, Doug, for your your warm welcome. As I... uh, began to think about what I should speak on this morning. Uh, My mind ran to a couple of appointments that I have to make early in the year. Probably the most important one of them is with my doctor. I go to see my doctor uh, twice a year, unless 
something intervenes in between, uh, for tests. I do so uh, because about 12 years ago uh, I discovered I had a, a serious underlying medical condition which would never have been detected apart from his insistence as I came to him as my new doctor that I undergo a series of tests before I ever come to see him. I walked into his office thinking that everything was fine, uh, only to discover, uh, to my shock in a sense, uh, that things were not fine. And there was an underlying trouble that, if left untreated, uh, would probably have very serious consequences in my life. And so I realised uh, from that moment onwards uh, that actually getting tested and going and seeing somebody who knows exactly what might be wrong with you is something that is, is very wise. And so I thought at the beginning of a new year, uh, perhaps the best thing to do to see a doctor <laughs> is to hear what the, uh, the good physician has to say to us about the state of our souls. And because of that, I thought it might be appropriate for us to go back to uh, an important part of scripture, which is often left out of a lot of Christian conversation and is completely absent from our modern education but something we need to come to terms with if we're going to enjoy our good health and true salvation. And I'm referring to uh, the third chapter of Genesis. So can I invite you please uh, for a moment to bow with me in prayer as we come to consider this important section of the word of God. Our Father in heaven, uh, this morning we come before you and we thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you sent into the world uh, to enlighten us. We thank you for the fact that he not only uh, caused the scriptures uh, to be breathed out for us and written for our learning, but he also comes as its interpreter. And we pray this morning that as we read these ancient words, you would speak to us through them. That you might reveal what lies within our souls, what is amiss, what is wrong with each one of us, and what must be done are to return us to your favour and to our own spiritual health and strength. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. I want to share with you... Uh, <coughs> an incident that took place in my life about 33 years ago. 
which still, in a sense, delivers uh, a very powerful shock to me. I remember standing uh, at my window in the city where I was first placed in a new church plant, looking out my lounge room window at my next-door neighbour's house. He was quite prosperous. He was well-to-do. He owned a couple of businesses. He had, uh, in my judgement at least, and in the judgement of the neighbours, uh, some very solid income streams. But there was the matter of his lifestyle. And that lifestyle was very expensive lifestyle. Consisted of frequent overseas trips, large expenditures, expensive cars, high lifestyle. And about 8.30 on this particular morning, as I was looking out the window, I suddenly saw pull up outside his house a couple of black fairlanes. And out of those cars came four men. They were dressed in dark suits with dark ties. And they went to his front door and knocked. Fortunately for him and for his family, no one was home. Whether they had a premonition of what was to happen, I simply do not know because none of us knew until this scene began to unfold. But what happened next shocked me. As these men got out of the car and went to the door, knocked and received no response, they returned to their cars and came back with chains and with locks. He had a very impressive home, iron fence, along with stone. It was all chained off. Front door was chained. Garage was chained. There was no way of getting out of the house or entering the house. And I subsequently learned that he had been evicted. And then these same men went to visit other people in the town who happened to be his guarantors. And a similar story happened there, only most of these people were caught completely unaware. Now I tell you that story because it reminds us of another tragic event that began at the very uh, beginning of human history, when Adam and his wife Eve were evicted and exiled from paradise, driven out, as it were, from their home, isolated, facing guilt and shame and recrimination, and the whole world seemed to be against them. And the image of them being forced out of their home in Eden, surrounded by so many troubles and filled with so much shame, uh, obviously invites us to ask the question, how did it ever come to this? And what explains this extraordinary story which we find at the beginning of the Bible 
Uh, what does it say about our world today? And what specifically does it say to us? You see, we can read this story as just an ancient historical account. Some would even say, you know, a fairy tale. But we can read it and pass it by and fail to allow its significance uh, to touch any part of our life. And of course, this story takes us right back to the heart of the human predicament and our difficulties with God in the third chapter of Genesis. It's not surprising, I guess, that this is one of the great battlegrounds of the Bible, one of the most contested places of Scripture. Those who specialise in the criticism of the Bible, higher critics, form critics, literary critics, they all swarm over this passage like flies. They all question its truthfulness, which I guess is not surprising because the Apostle Paul reminds us in the sixth chapter of the letter, his letter to the Ephesians that we're engaged in a spiritual war. And in this spiritual war, the great issues are truth and error. And so it should come as no surprise to us that this chapter is probably uh, one of the most controversial in Scripture. Given the existence of Satan, I guess we would expect that he would do everything within his power to discredit this particular section of Scripture. It's not as though it, you know, it's a new phenomenon that this particular passage has come under question. It's always been under question. And that came to the fore in Jesus' own ministry, where Jesus reminds us that if Satan can get us to disbelieve in what Moses has written, then we are most unlikely to believe him to be the saviour of the world and our saviour. In fact, if Satan didn't realise that before the incarnation, he certainly knows it now because Jesus said this to his opponents in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? In other words, if you don't accept what Moses says, about God and man and sin and the state of the world, you won't be able to believe what Jesus says because Jesus links his authority to that of Moses and says a person's response to Moses will be typical of the response that they provide to him. Now, I know that many may find that uncomfortable, uh, but this is an authoritative saying of Jesus. And it simply underscores the words of, this, of the importance of this passage and this doctrine of sin. This, this issue is, is, is a very large civilisational issue was Carl Menninger, the former, one of the former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, 
who wrote a book, Whatever Happened to Sin? And Menninger made the point, as one of America's leading psychiatrists, that we, to our peril, abolish the category of sin. He said, you know, in our secular age, we have removed that category altogether. We talk about crimes. We talk about, you know, malfeasance. We talk about a whole range of other things, but we never actually use the word that the Bible uses to describe our fundamental problem with God. Well, you say, why is this story so significant and why did it happen? Why were Adam and Eve evicted and exiled from the Garden of Eden? And why did God drive them out and make it impossible for them on their terms to return? You'll notice what we read in the 22nd, chapter, the 22nd verse. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Isn't it extraordinary that the whole beginning of the Bible uh, starts in this idyllic setting where man and woman, the husband and wife, Adam and Eve, are at peace with God, are in communion with God, are in love and fellowship with themselves and indeed the whole created order. There is no hint of stress or strain. There's no suggestion of sin or struggle. It's a blissful environment in which they live and they enjoy the companionship of God. And there's clearly a fellowship between man and God uh, given by virtue of the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God and one of the greatest and most sacred gifts of all is the gift of language. And God communes with Adam and Eve and we're told that he walks with them in the garden. It's a, a picture-perfect existence of complete fulfilment and satisfaction. There's not even the slightest hint of conflict or unruliness or unwillingness to obey God. It's just a picture of perfect compatibility and compliance to God's will. And yet seemingly within a few short moments, uh, Adam becomes convinced by a suggestion from another being that God's purposes for him are not good but are somehow malign. And so he begins to doubt that his greatest privilege is this relationship and communion with God. And he begins to think that dependence on God, reliance on God, instruction from God is somehow or other demeaning of his true humanity. 
It's undermining of his growth and of his maturity. And at Satan's prompting, he begins to resent these so-called limitations that have been placed upon him. And he begins to believe that God, instead of being for him, is against him. And so, in a moment of spiritual madness, he takes from the tree from which he's been commanded not to eat, and in doing so, he plunges the world, not just himself, but the world, into sin. I know we think it seems to be terribly unfair that such a calamity should have come upon the world by virtue of one man's sin, uh, but we recognise the fact that you know, in a world where we all live, uh, we're all related to one another, and the deeds of some can have impacts on others. And this is exactly what happened here. And from that very moment, uh, certain irreversible laws came into effect that ruptured Adam's relationship with God and opened him up to a life of disappointment, anguish, suffering, and pain which led inexorably to his own physical death. It was a slow, it was a lingering existence and God designed it that way because he wanted him to know consequences and the pain of death and no doubt to reflect upon his state and to hear one of the promises which he gave him at that time that he might find hope and trust in God. If you've got your Bibles open there, you might like to turn with me to the 14th and 15th verses, where we read that when, the God, when God was announcing to uh, the serpent and... Uh, to the man and his wife, what would happen. He said this to the serpent. Because you have done this, you are cursed above all the livestock and all the wild animals, and you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike is here. This is one of the uh, first promises that we have in the Bible of hope. Hope that one day the stranglehold of evil and Satan's power would be broken over us and that it would come uh, through a deliverer from the woman who would ultimately destroy Satan by crushing his head and be dreadfully wounded in the process. His heel would be struck. So Adam began his life from this moment onwards in a state of sin and alienation. 
and in a condition of exile. And ever since that time, that has described uh, the human condition. We now live, as it were, in a world east of Eden. The Lord God said, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out and placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. When God uh, banished him uh, from the garden, he did so in the belief that Adam and his descendants uh, would be awakened uh, to their plight. And it's a great day uh, when all of us become aware of our true spiritual condition. I say that as somebody who knows the benefit of that just from the point of view of medicine. It's a good day if you go to the doctor and you find out what's wrong with you. It opens the possibility of successful treatment. And that's exactly uh, what was intended here. C.S. Lewis once said, pain is God's megaphone from which he speaks to us from heaven. In other words, the circumstances in which we find ourselves in this sinful world, caught up in the entanglements of sin and the curse upon the world, are actually designed to awaken our consciences and lead us to a state of true repentance. I don't know about you, but uh, the first time that I became aware that I had sinned against God and was in need of redemption was the most important day of my life. It was a day when uh, I can remember that uh, God revealed to me uh, my true nature, my true self, which I'd never really come to terms with, and realised that my only hope was in Christ. My only hope was in what he had done for me and not what I could do for myself. My hope was in his righteousness and his blood which had been shed for me and in nothing that I could bring myself. And here we realise that if Adam was ever to be restored, there needed to be confession, there needed to be humbling, there needed to be sacrifice, there needed to be a calling out for mercy and a reliance upon the provision that God had made for sinners. And the sentence which God placed upon the couple as they left the Garden of Eden was a reminder to us that we can never gain paradise on our own terms. It's an important lesson to learn. It means that while the state of sin is unresolved in our lives, we will never be reconciled uh, to God. While humankind remains selfish and self-centred, paradise is simply beyond us. 
regardless of whether we're civilised, regardless of whether or not we have good manners. None of us can ever enter paradise while still under the control and the influence of Satan. So today's a good day to ask the question, has it happened to me? Do I know that the power of evil has been broken in my life? You know, I'm not asking whether you come to church. I'm not asking whether you are a member of a Christian family. You can do all those things and harbour evil in your heart. And the message here today is, has the control and influence of the evil one been broken in your life? And further, notice that God's made it plain that no one can enter into his holy presence in violation of God's law. I think that's the reason why he places these cherubim at the gate holding a sword that flashes back and forth. The sword is a reminder, as it were, of uh, the law of God. It symbolises God's righteousness and it reminds us that paradise is actually barred to sinners until such time as they are righteous, until such time uh, as the power of evil has been broken in their lives. And if we're ever to enter into this state, it will only be because our sinful natures have been removed and we've received a gift of righteousness. Now, the interesting thing I think that we observe uh, in the world is that paradise still remains a hope in the human heart. Whether people are religious or not, we're all hoping in some sense for a better world. We're looking for some solution to the human predicament. We're seeking of some novel way to overcome all that we think obstructs and prevents human progress. explains why political movements that promise a better and a greater society have such appeal. Politicians know that they can uh, easily uh, gain people's attention if they make promises that offer a better tomorrow. That's what's so appealing about you know, the new sort of socialist state. It usually promises to look after its citizens from cradle to grave and promises uh, a condition of life which they cannot have on their own. Rewrites the 23rd Psalm like this, the state is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me lie down in green pastures. It leads me by still waters. It restores my soul by redistributing wealth and services. That's the solution to this longing for paradise. Of course, capitalists have got their own view of it all. Free marketeers uh, promise similar worldly benefits. However, uh, they conceive of paradise more in an equitable share of goods and services through hard work. And of course, they're not the only sort of visions of paradise which people have had throughout history. There are religious, religious versions of it. There were people who were looking for paradise in the first century at the time of Jesus. 
You know, the people who, who gathered in the community at Qumran, the Essenes, believed that you know, if they just lived a life of isolation from the world and obvious righteousness, somehow or other they could win the approval of God. In the same way that many Muslims today think that by the restoration of a world caliphate and the imposition of worldwide sharia, we can somehow or other create the perfect paradise. There are many people today in the realm of science who think they hold the keys to a better life through simple scientific experimentation and exploration. We can bring about a new age, a new kingdom. We can control things like climate and other outer space and bring about a better world as a result. However, regardless of how we conceive paradise, we need to come to terms with what we read here in Genesis 3.24. The Lord banished the man from the garden and having driven him out, placed cherubim with a flashing sword, or flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The Bible says if you want to if you want to receive this gift of paradise, which lingers in the human heart, the only way in which it can be done is on God's terms. We need to come to terms with the reality of our fallen condition. We need to understand why God has imposed his curse upon the world. And we need to realise how we overcome the consequences of our sin. See, simply passing laws won't banish all these things. We would hope that they would, but they don't. We're trying to create today a perfect world without God. But this is simply impossible because it's God's world and he controls all that happens in it and he himself has laid down how each of us should enter this promised paradise. But what does this mean? It means that paradise can be regained, uh, but not in the way that we ordinarily conceive. Not in the way that political theorists tell us, not in the way that economists suggest to us, not the way that scientists claim or philosophers suggest. How do we enter it? How do we enter into this abundant life? Well, if God is the source of life and sin actually robs that life from us, then sin obviously keeps us from God too. And surely that's the meaning of these guards that God placed on the gate, as it were, on the way out of Eden in the garden. The cherubim, in a sense, are the highest of the angels, they stand in God's nearer presence and they represent God's majesty, his might and his glory. Their swords represent the perfect standard of righteousness and law that God requires. And you might also remember that in the Old Testament they were depicted as the angels who were on the curtains of the most holy place. They pointed as they looked down to the demands of the law which resided in the 
Ark of the Covenant. They looked to the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice had been shed. And the fact that they hold this flaming sword which turns in every direction reminds us that the way to God is impenetrable apart from approaching him in his way. And so, friends, if you want to regain paradise, if you want life to the full, it will never begin for us until we've met the claims of God himself. Paradise is there. Jesus proclaimed it to a repentant sinner on the cross. Remember me, he said, Lord, when you come in your heavenly kingdom. And he said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Thank God that Christ has been offered once for all, the one necessary sacrifice for sins. He has flung open the doors of paradise. He has welcomed us home. He's the good shepherd who comes searching for his sheep and brings them home rejoicing. And the angels in heaven rejoice over one who turns, who's a sinner. And we need to come to him today. We need to remember that it's only in Christ that we receive this gift. Uh, we need not be deluded by all the promises that the world offers us about a better world in some future time. We're told that it comes first in Christ when he came to take away the sin of many and it will come in all its fullness a second time when he comes not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And our task until then as we wait for Christ to return to make paradise a visible reality is to follow uh, Jesus' instruction. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied and see the kingdom of heaven. Today's a good day for us all uh, to examine our hearts, to, as it were, go back to the beginnings and understand what we lost in Adam and what we've recovered in Christ and to turn to God in repentance and in trust and receive this precious gift without which none of us will ever know that blessing that God has in store for all those who love him. Uh, the gift of a new heavens and a new earth and a paradise restored, which is found only in Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you again for uh, this chapter, which, as it were, removes the veil from our eyes in this modern world. Help us to see these spiritual realities of uh, the fall, of the sin in which we all share, 
of the rule and the power of the Prince of Darkness and also the great victory that we have in Christ that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we pray, our God, that you would bring each one of us home uh, safely and rejoicing as we begin a new year. We ask it in his name. Amen.